0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 32 and we're swinging back to the Cape Frontier through the last few decades of the 18th century. It's going to be a story of intermingling and not always happy. I'm going to thoroughly probe this period because so many crucial things were unfolding across southern Africa, such as the development of new centralized powerful kingdoms in the east, the acceleration of land occupation by the Trick Boers, and the first real clashes between the Isikosa and settlers. That's far too much to chew on in just one or two episodes, I'm sure you'll agree. First, we need to step back and take a wide-angle view of the region in this episode. By the mid-1700s, the eastern Cape Frontier was a vaguely defined area east of the Khamtus River. This is where black South Africans speaking a Bantu language first encountered white settlers as distinct from traders and missionaries. It's also here that policies which have had a profound influence on Southern Africa were first formulated and applied. It was also a cultural frontier between warring states and had many characteristics of frontiers elsewhere across the world at that time. One, of course, was in North America. By the late 1700s, something else had changed, and that was the ease of access. Always far from Cape Town, this area hundreds of miles up the east coast had been pretty much off the Dutch map for most of the preceding 100 years of colonization. But by 1770, a wagon road led to Hermanus Kral, or what is today known as Fort Brown which is just north of Grahamstown, which today is now called Makanda. During this series, I'll use the names deployed at the time of the historical storytelling. Fort Brown is still called Fort Brown. The original buildings, by the way, from that period are still in use. It's a police station. This fort is on a southeastern bend of the Great Fish River, and both the road and the fort were significant. You see, South Africa's frontier was radically different from the greater part of Africa to the north. The landscape facilitated transport. Horses flourished in this part of Africa and south of the Vaal River there was no tsetse fly to impede the movement of stock to the coast there were no jungles no unfordable rivers no feeders. that meant there was no problem using ox-wagons to move about while the humble ox-wagon is a vehicle of derision these days consider the massive effect it's had on southern africa perhaps your view will change a good analogy is to consider all these people buying mobile homes and living on the move then imagine doing the same with a vehicle dragged along by a dozen specially trained oxen. The ox wagon often didn't even need a road or a track and rolled over the felt carrying its passengers and provisions. People using these vehicles could survive for months and in some cases years without stopping. The most lucrative trade was in cattle and these were driven to market along these early roads from the east, from Fort Brown all the way to Cape Town. Every hunting and trading party was mounted on horses and in some cases they would ride along oxen with mules and donkeys. In the same way that the covered wagons crossed the plains of America, the covered ox wagon crossed the felt of South Africa. These wagons would carry tons of metal beads and tobacco, amongst other products, which were then exchanged for ivory and skins. The implications were far-reaching. Horses and wagons gave individual settlers the mobility to move fairly rapidly over the felt, which was absent in other parts of Africa. You've seen the movies of traders around the Great Lakes of Africa, for example, and you'll recall they were carried along by slaves or Africans hired as bearers. Everything around Malawi, for example, had to be carried on someone's head or in a sling on their backs or on wooden staves carried by two people. They were dependent on large numbers of locals to be either forced or paid to assist these ventures into the interior. These bearers then had to be fed and protected, which cost even more. But in southern Africa, all you needed was a wagon, oxen, a horse, and a musket, all three. These items, yes, were not cheap in the 1700s, but once attained, they would be put to use making a living. Investors would have wagons built, and fund an expedition north or east of the Cape. The ivory and skins and cattle would bring in useful profits. That is why the Cape Felt was rapidly denuded of animals as hunters shot them down in their thousands. Elephants disappeared by the early 1800s, whereas around Lake Malawi until late in the 19th century, ivory was still of little value without slaves to carry it to the coast, which of course was an extremely costly undertaking. Delagoa Bay, or what became Lorenzo Marks, also required carriers, as horses and oxen died in that fever-ridden region. But here in the south, settlers had their trusty wooden wheels sheathed in a metal tread. This meant traders could travel 700 miles from the Cape and still conduct a profitable business whole families could move through the felt and this is what had begun to increase by the latter half of the 18th century. As the colonists who sought hunting opportunities and grazing land moved east across the Khamtus River, the Khoza were moving west across the Fish River and the two cultures were said to clash because they were so similar. This aspect is not readily understood. Both the Kosa and the settlers sought exactly the same things. The farmers with their firearms lived on the game they shot. Most of the time, and the butter and cattle some of the time. Similarly, the Kosa hunted game for meat and clothing most of the time, and sometimes even killed more game than they could consume. It's a myth that they would only kill what they could eat, although without the dreaded musket and later the rifle, they would kill far fewer than the European hunters who began trundling across the felt in their trusty ox wagons. The Klausa were sparing in their use of cattle as food, preferring to drink the milk or amasi we heard about last episode. They were dependent on hunting due to the poor soils of the region around much of the Eastern Cape. As on the Canadian frontier, this way of life was not forced on the cause. They preferred it in the same way that the First Nation people of Canada preferred it. And like the Canadian example, this way of life became impossible as the population grew larger and outsiders arrived in great numbers. And from the time that the struggle for land began on the Eastern Cape Frontier in the early 18th century, there has been an argument about who occupied certain areas first. Koza, Khoi San and settlers have mingled between the Kai and the Khamtos for three centuries. We have some documents and our old friend archaeology to assist in the dating of these arrivals. The record of the survivors of the wreck of the Stabanis, for example, These show that by 1686, the Kosa were living in the Buffalo River near today's East London and were the third people to arrive there. Before the Kosa, the Khoi had been living there, and for a period both Khoi and Khoza lived around the Buffalo River together. The first people there were obviously the San, who predated both by tens of thousands of years. This is a weird race backwards, isn't it? Who was first is a crucial question, however. Origin implies ownership. Nearby Long Longcloof, between modern Cape St. Francis and Plettenberg Bay, is an interesting example of how timing and dates on land worked. In 1689, it was occupied by koi and some sand without cattle. There were no Khoza living there. According to Khoza oral tradition, Chiwu's son, Kwali was received by a koi koi chief called Hinsai, who lived at Nojoli, where Somerset East is today. That is almost due north from Tabeca, or Port Elizabeth. And it was there that the first expedition of dutch youths with muskets on a raiding mission first bumped into the cause in 1702 by 1772 explorer tunberg met cause intermingled with the koikoi Koi on the hamptous river that is between jeffrey's Bay and kabecha why dwell on these things well later there would be much bitter debate about who was on which river and when this has come back today to haunt us and it's not just about settlers I recently attended a conference in Cape Town where the first peoples addressed the gathering. The Khoi Sand people delivered their messages and they were adamant that they were first on this land and must receive reparations from both whites and blacks. As far as they are concerned, both whites and blacks rocked up after the Khoi in the sand and to this group both were invaders. Those being invaded don't really care if it's by sea or across the land if their way of life is shattered. Peering back into time with a political prism made of existing narratives is a terrible mistake. It's didactic. Those doing this in our education system could be accused of dispensing politically correct moral instruction with an ulterior motive. As apartheid educators discovered, enforcing one-sided stories tend to blow up in your face, and in some cases, literally. The descendants of the Khoi and San are now growing more vocal and angry about what I'm saying here, which has thrown the present ruling political class into somewhat of a quandary. These leaders have found with shock that you can't reject the concept of origin if it doesn't fit your storyline, particularly when the Khoi San demand their land. Some of that land is owned by Khoi clans who regard it as their sacred and ancient land. The problem for them is it's not just as ancient as the Khoi San. That is why we're spending quite a bit of time this episode looking at what was really happening in specific places across South Africa at a specific time. I've met political leaders who try and avoid this conversation because, to be blunt, they don't really understand it, nor are they interested in the truth. Given the level of anger I witnessed at the First Peoples conversation, I'd be rather nervous if I was in government trying to fix land issues right now. The Eastern Cape has always had a distinct allure for visitors with its rocky harshness, its intense brooding landscapes, tough and succulent-lined deeply ravine rivers, and its echoes of ancient human memories. The beauty belies its secrets, which we're going to try and pry open. As we've heard, the Koikoi Koi could be found all the way up the east coast to the area around the Kucha River, then inland up into the small Karoo. The sand lived in dispersed groups and were particularly conspicuous in the valleys of the Kai and Fish Rivers and north of the Matoli Ranges, which separate the coastal plain from the tableland upcountry. As a student, I worked for a few months at a sand site near Craddock in the Eastern Cape that had been occupied by the sand for at least 2,000 years, but likely much longer, as that's as far down as our dig went. The competition for land and the market for meat in Cape Town led to the raiding by settlers in the central North Cape. Now the same characteristic of seizing cattle and driving people off the land was heading inexorably up the East Coast. Don't forget... The San constantly raided Khoza and Tembu cattle and sheep. These people weren't friends. They also focused on the settler horses when they could. The Khoza, in turn raided cattle and horses from the settlers and vice versa. It wasn't quite white versus black. It was more like yellow-brown versus black versus white. The farmers retaliated, and when seeking revenge, they would not distinguish one group of Khoza San, or Khoi from another. By 1793, main from Graf was raiding far up the coast, all the way to the Buffalo River. Meanwhile, by that decade, the Khoza were raiding farms in the Longcloof near Kucher and along the coast as far as Plettenberg Bay. In 1799, they set fire to buildings in Neisner. I've jumped forward just to explain how fluid the situation was in the Eastern Cape Coastal Belt, in particular through the mid to late 18th century. Successive governments sought to avoid conflict by limiting the interaction between Khoza and settlers, but they failed miserably. One of the ways the company tried to do this was to identify Kosa cattle on settler farms, which of course looked different to Cape beasts. However, the more contact between these two groups, the more their cattle interbred, so that identification techniques had a used by date. By 1770, the furthest farm was Eitkomst on the Kambidu Mountains, 35 solid hours on horseback north of the Fish River. We know that by 1772, Willem Prinsler was already beyond Brankieshoechte in the Fish River Valley, while cattle belonging to farmers were grazing on the Luri, Van Stadens and Kucha rivers. The tension was growing in the Cape Colony between the centre and the frontier, between Cape Town and the South West Cape. The government and the colony connected to the world via Cape Town, linked to the Dutch commercial empire through shipping, while simultaneously Cape Town was tied to the valleys of the Khrip River and the Fish. Here the colonists connected with Africans. The former was a world of trading and farming, slavery, government administration, and control. The latter was a world of pastoralism, exploited koi, minimal government, and a situation that was close to anarchy. Before this government center could seize control of the frontier, the relations between the settlers and Cape Town changed profoundly. South Africa was moving from a region dominated formerly by its foreign rulers to one in which the established settlers had a significant say in the running of affairs the ruling class that was emerging was now native to the colony and of settler descent whatever modern revisionists say the truth is these people became part of the landscape they belonged for good or for bad because that's how they thought of themselves as locals the fact they were not black is irrelevant to their own perception of themselves as men and women of the felt but they tried to cling on to the Europeanness through their calvinist church adherence but the further they drove their wagons into africa the further away from being Europeans they became. The one great failing of this group is the fact that they failed to recognize they had become African. The families on each trek wagon tried to insulate themselves from their surroundings by an exaggerated expression of Europeanness in dress and religion and expression. The political consciousness that emerged amongst this colonial ruling class was process driven. First, there was a profound ambivalence between the settler elites and the officials of the VOC. By the 1770s, something called the Cape Patriot Movement had developed in Cape Town and was influenced by the American Patriot movements far away across the Atlantic. While they took their name from the Patriot Movement in the Netherlands, they localized their goals. One of the triggers for this movement was an incident, as they often are. karl Hendrik Betendach was arrested near Stellenbosch and banished in 1770. He had been incredibly brutal towards the local koi and his koi-koi servants and was hated by a powerful Dutch clan, the Van der Mervers. Badendag was eventually convicted of killing a koi servant and sentenced to be banished from the colony. On appeal, his sentence was remitted and he was allowed to remain until a short while later when his wife complained to the authorities that he was beating her and the servants once more. The fiscal W.C. Boers had him arrested and he was finally shipped off to Batavia in the Far East. That was the pretext on which a major agitation was organised. A petition was drawn up and signed by 400 burghers, then sent to the Heeren 17 in Amsterdam. The private merchants of Cape Town signed this document, along with the richer farmers of the Western Cape. In the petition, a number of claims were made that damaged the VOC administration, including high-handedness, dubious laws, and the stranglehold that the company had over the Cape's economy. You've heard about the VOC corruption, the monopoly that controlled everyone's lives, and it was somewhat inevitable that the local settler citizens would eventually deem themselves powerful enough to challenge external rule. Like America. By now, the elite farmers were producing wheat and other crops for sale, but each time they came to conduct their trade, there would be the VOC local official hand out, ready to take his cut. The kind of VOC tenderpreneur, I guess you'd call it these days. Government officials skimming cash in an organized manner. It was corrupt, and still is. Naturally, the Stenembosch and other farmers demanded the right to run their own shipping. This happened at the same time as the American War of Independence, and this led to a boom time for farmers of the Western Cape, another connection between the Americans and the South Africans. Many extra ships were dropping anchor in Table Bay, hailing from France mainly, The VOC refused to budge on the officials taking a cut as middlemen and from now on the days of the company were numbered in the Cape. The British were also taking an unhealthy interest in this important route around the tip of Africa. It was long before the Suez Canal was built and London took note of the French ships dropping by at the Cape of Good Hope. This was obviously a strategic location and as the British Empire expanded they needed an important refueling point for their ships heading to and returning from India. Meanwhile, during the 1770s, the Trek Boers pushed north through the Little Karoo between the great ranges of the Cape Fold Mountains, over the Swartberg, into the desiccated Great Karoo, then towards the vast plains of the Kambidu. These stretch from the foothills of the Sneerberg Mountains in the north to the rugged wilderness of the Babiansberg in the south. Kambidu means green hollow in Koikoi, Koi, by the way, as it was more lush in the 18th century than it is today. The western parts though were quite dry but the shrubs and succulents offered pasturage for sheep while in the east the felt was covered with sweet felt. We've already heard what that means for pastoralists so the scene was set for a confrontation in a specific area of the eastern Cape. Livestock could graze on the sweet felt all year round because the soil is of neutral acidity and it teemed with wildlife at that stage as well as cattle belonging to the Inqua koi they were known for the riches in cattle, but that Clausa had plundered much of this treasure by the early 1700s. And of course, the sand was still roaming the plains and mountains. The original people were watching all these changes with growing alarm. They had been hunting the vast herds of game for tens of thousands of years and had no idea that this way of life was going to be driven from the region by both settlers with firearms who were going to empty the felt of their treasures and Clausa demanding land for their herds. This northern region of the Cape was a frontier zone and intensely volatile, the region we've heard about already in what was called the First Bushman War of 1739. That was to the north, where the San were also fiercely resisting the encroachment of the trekboers onto their hunting lands of the Rochefeld and the Nuvafeld. That was the escarpment, and this was taking place by the last three decades of the 18th century. One San at the time, and quoted by historian Nigel Penn, asked one of these trekboers, what are you doing in my land? Why did you not stay where the sun goes down, where you first came from? You see, this is what the sand wanted, to expel the settlers from their land. There's been some confusion about what land meant to the sand. The narrative developed over the next few hundred years, virtually until today, was that because these people did not have land marked by fences or documented on paper, they did not care for it. Of course, the reality is completely the opposite. They may never have settled anywhere, roaming the land constantly, but the sand used the same waterholes as they moved around. They lived in the same caves for many thousands of years, and the archaeological evidence proving this is beyond extensive. They also lived in little grass huts that could take an hour to erect and then take down. By moving, they also ensured that the land did not become exhausted, so it is true that the sand believed that no individual owned the land and that everybody had the right to use it but as regards to what they thought of the land well like so many groups that depend on the felt for survival they regard land as sacred and respect it as a gift of god the sand of course believe in a single god surrounded by many deities another mistake early settlers made was to think of them as godless i'll come back to San religion in a later podcast so the long course of what we now call the northern war but was previously called the Second Bushman War, broke out in 1772 and was centred in the Rochefeld and the Namakland. The scale of the bloodshed and level of devastation and sheer ferocity that was going to take place was unprecedented in the colonial history of Southern Africa up to then. Escaped slaves, absconded Khoi servants, and even white deserters from the VOC army joined the Khoisan in resisting the Dutch settlers in what would be the new district of Graaf Reinet. But as with the First War, Conflict would spill over back into the south and west, into Swellendam and Stellenbosch. The motivated and ruthless Koisan war bands had had enough of the settler raiding. They wanted revenge and they wanted to drive the settlers into the sea. Part of this story is going to be one of a missed opportunity, as you'll hear. In the Rochefeld, settlers and Koisan had actually developed an uneasy relationship, but by 1770 it would take a false rumour to tip this relationship from irritating raiding to full-scale war. In the nine years of this vicious war, the Khoisan carried off almost 20,000 cattle and 84,000 sheep. They killed 276 and slave herdsmen and destroyed hundreds of farmhouses and outbuildings. Most farmers of the northern frontier were going to be ruined by this war. The settlers were exhausted by the constant demands of the commandos set up to fight during the last three decades of the 18th century. At times, the Khoisan drove the farmers out of Hrafreinet entirely, and the commander's system was going to be pushed to the utter limits of its ability. And yet, the Dutch farmers hung on, and they did this by becoming even more ruthless as they retaliated. Folks, if you've driven through Graaf and the Clan Karoo, you'll feel the chill of the historical shadow cast by this time, despite the summer temperatures topping 40 degrees Celsius. I'm going to take us through what happened there starting next episode, and at times the commando raids took on an explicitly genocidal dimension. While the Turek Boers were usually more concerned about exploiting Khoisan labor than eliminating them, in the next few years, these commanders would kill more than 2,500 San, who suffered more than any other people of this land. These events have cast a long shadow across history, all the way to modern Khoisan descendants, who want justice now. The commando at times wiped out entire sand family groups, cleansing the filth of these ancient people. At other times, they kill all men and young boys then seize the women and children for their farms. But by the end of the 18th century, the commandos were no longer fighting to stop sand raiding, but raiding the sand specifically to steal their women and children for labor. So next episode, we'll hear about the start of the Northern War. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. If you'd like to contact me, you can mail me through my website, desmintlatham.com, or direct message me at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.